All right, welcome back to Radio Wasteland, and our guest tonight is Terry Lovelace, uh, author of Incident and Devil's Den, great title, true story by Terry Lovelace. Um, you are going to be a speaker at Contact in the Desert, which I'm pretty jealous of. I, like everybody else, have not gotten out of the house in the past year nearly enough, and normally I'm jealous and I want to go, but this year all the more so. Um, now, you have a wild story to tell us uh i'm not sure if story is the right word it implies maybe fiction but this isn't fiction but you have a wild retelling to tell us um but why don't you give us a little background on who you are first because you know your background is a major factor in why this is coming out now sure um i graduated from high school in 1973 in st louis missouri and i joined the united states air force right out of high school I was trained as a medic and EMT, uh, worked as a first responder, spent all six years of my active duty enlistment at Whiteman Air Force Base in Western Missouri. And in 1977, a um, friend and I went camping at Devil's Den State Park in Northwestern Arkansas. Uh, but let me continue with my bio real quick. Uh, separated from the military in 1979, I finished a degree in psychology for my undergrad. I went to law school at Western Michigan and uh, practiced law in, uh, in Lansing and in Grand Ledge for a while, and then got an appointment as Assistant Attorney General to the U.S. Territory of American Samoa, which was a great gig. Beautiful people, uh, beautiful place, 2,500 miles south of Hawaii, right in the middle of the Pacific, and uh, finished my career as uh, State's Attorney for Vermont and retired in 2012. And my wife and I moved to Dallas, where we're at now with our kids and grandkids. What is a state's attorney? Uh, they have what's called a board of medical practice that regulates doctors uh, from a legal standpoint to see that their, their conduct and their, their treatments are all within the standard of care and within the laws and regulations of the state of Vermont. And if they go outside that, uh, those parameters, and uh, for instance, uh, prescribed uh, Oxycontin to someone in excessive quantities. Um, right. You know, that would make them subject to uh, sanctions under the regulation and a hearing. And then, you know, it could be anything from uh, a hearing or a dismissal or it could be a revocation of license to practice medicine. Yeah, so the reason why I have you explain your backstory and and who you are is because i think a big leap has been made here in people with experiences because of so much coming you know for years this was always pushed back to the crackpots or the whatever and you know for for the past couple of years here now we have people that your general joe would consider to be a credible person coming out and saying hey listen this happened to me and uh it's not just the crackpots um, so why don't we back it up and why don't you start telling us what happened to you? I'm sure Karen and I will have questions, but, uh, sure. There's a lot to get into. I should, yeah. should get rolling here. Um, <laughs> we, we, uh, we pack some, we'd never been camping before, right? So we're winging it. And I mean, it ain't rocket science. You pack some stuff and you go down and we bought a $10 Kmart tent and some inflatable air mattresses. And we went to Devil's Den State Park. And we didn't know it at the time, but Devilston State Park has kind of a long and weird uh, history of people uh, dying and disappearing and uh, never being found. Mm -hmm. uh, Sorry, sometimes when, being found. When was this? 
in you know relation to the bio you just gave when was that? a june of 1977 okay interesting so david politis who uh, wrote the missing 411 series about people that go missing from state and federal parks right his fourth volume in the series is called devil's den miss pardon me missing 411 the devil is in the details and he talks about some of the strange just not mine but some of the other strange disappearances uh from Devil's Den. So it's so a hot spot. It, it is. It is. I, I, I was uh, monitoring the local newspapers down there during 2017 when I was writing the book. And there were two disappearances that year. Well, not disappearances. There, there was a woman who, was, who disappeared and was gone for seven days. And rangers found her at the bottom of a 100-foot limestone cliff. And she was deceased. And uh, ruled by the medical examiner as a suicide. And that's all the details I know. That's all that was reported. I would love to have read an autopsy report or some of the backstory, but it wasn't available. And then in August of 2017, a 32-year-old young man from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, named Rodney Letterman uh, and friend were at Devil's Den. They were walking the Butterfield Trail, and they were some distance into their walk. It's an easy trail. It's paved. It's, it's, it's an easy walk. And Rodney realized he was having some difficulty breathing. He had asthma and didn't have his inhaler. Asked his friend to go back to the truck and grab his inhaler. So his friend runs back and is back in 40 minutes. And uh, there's no Rodney Letterman, but his cell phone is laying on the ground. So he knows that the terrain is rough off of the trail and that there's no way that Rodney could have uh, gone very far. And he gets rangers involved. And what follows is you know, a week-long intensive search with, you know, helicopters with FLIR and, and you know, all the resources they can muster. And then uh, the search itself lasted with private funding from the family into October. And they never found a single thing from Rodney Letterman until March of 2019, when a young couple was walking down the trail. And in the middle of an eight-foot log, dead center, there was a uh, an object and the young lady says to her friend is that an albino turtle and he says i don't know what that is and he walks over and he picks it up and it was a football shaped top of rodney letterman's skull uh, verified by the bartlesville medical examiner uh, bleached white from the sun and that's all they've ever found of rodney letterman no, not a stitch of clothing not another bone not not anything uh, what 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 I find disturbing is, is that to me, from being an ex-district attorney for a while, this sounds like a staged crime scene. It was put there to be seen. And that's what I think is the most disturbing thing about the, about the event. All right. So it's a strange place. It has a weird vibe. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no kidding. Um, well, man, I got a bunch of questions about that too, but I'm going to stick on you. Okay, so right. what happened to you there while you were okay. We uh, we decided we didn't want to stay in a campground because we didn't want, uh, you know, people to the right of us, people to the left of us. Uh, you know, we'd never been camping before, but we were going to be real outdoorsmen, right? We, we were going to find a spot of our own. With so, your air mattresses. With our air mattresses, uh, our <laughs> $10 <outdoors>. Kmart <laughs> <laughs> cooler full of sandwiches and right. uh, my, my buddy's backpack. And we got there and... Uh, well, we got to a chain across the road. The road changed from pavement to gravel to ruts in the road. And then a chain across the road with a really sternly worded keep out no entrance sign. 
uh, and an emblem. And we found out we didn't realize it at the time. I mean, I was 22, he was 23. And uh, it was actually federal property. I thought it was a nature preserve or something, but it's owned by the Bureau of Land Management. And uh, it's, you know, still no, no admittance. It's not even part of the park. So I thought, I thought we were kind of stuck because of the chain, but my buddy says, no, no, I got this. He hops out of the passenger side of the car. And what the Rangers had done is just taken the chain, formed a loop and then put a padlock on it to form a noose and draped it over the opposing, the opposing post on a nail. Right. So, you know, you don't have to fumble with keys, you know, right. if you're in a hurry, just pick it up and drop it and drive in. So that's what we did. Piggy picked it up and it fell and we thought, Ooh, you know, we're in. And, uh, <laughs> We, uh, we drove, uh, my friend Toby navigated and we found this plateau. And uh, I don't know if I sent you guys a picture of it or not, but yeah, it's easily yeah. found on Google earth. Mm-hmm. And it, it is a almost triangular shaped plateau. And we, there's just a dirt road that went up it back then. And it's still that way today. And somebody clear cuts that with a tractor and a brush hog to keep the growth down. So it's a lot of, it's 50 years of gas, burning gas to keep the top of a plateau. And we don't know why, we still don't know why. I assume we passed around, yeah. Oh yeah, well, Bureau of Land Management isn't saying anything. Right. You know, so the US government isn't saying anything. It's not the kind of information, uh, I don't think a Freedom of Rights Information Act would say anything other than, uh, you know, for conservation purposes, you know. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, so, could that be to prevent wildfire? You know. Yeah, probably. But, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> right. You know, That's I didn't even know the triangle is perfect for fighting wildfires. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I think you know, you know, the thing should be covered with forty-year-old mature trees by now, uh-huh. and that's what gets me. So. Well, we got in, and it was a gorgeous place, and we set up our our little tent. And our, uh, I made it, we made a campfire and, you know, we had our air mattresses on either side of the campfire and we're all kicked back in our air mattresses. We'd had, you know, we had done all the fun stuff you do when you camping because it was new to us. Right. And uh, we uh, were sitting there just chatting and it's about nine o'clock in the evening and, you know, we've had a nice day, had a good time. And I noticed that we had had uh, trouble with our, you know, getting, being heard by one another because of the crickets, the tree frogs, all the stuff in the forest that makes, makes noise at night. Mm -hmm. And, and this sounds cliche, I know, but it's true. All that stuff abruptly stopped and it really was dead quiet. I mean, we could hear the fire crackle, but that was it. Right. And I asked my friend, you know, man, is this normal? You know, like he's going to know, right? Right. uh, he's, He's like, yeah, listen, he says, you know, we've been laughing and cutting up. He said, don't worry about the bugs. The bugs will come back. Right. Like, okay, okay. Yeah, when this comes up in stories, I always wonder about it because it's obviously, obviously the bugs aren't scared. The bugs aren't sitting there going, hey, shut up, dude. You know, this thing's happening. So it's like, is it electricity? Is it, you know, pheromone? What is it that would quiet all that, you know? You know what it is, I think? I'm convinced it's influence uh, by them. I think extraterrestrial beings can influence uh, like a, stuff. Like a calming influence that basically says like sleep, sleep and everything. Boy, that's, you nailed that one. 
Yeah, I'm like those, the, like those uh, hypnotists that go sleep, sleep to people and they fall over. And they know? fall over. Yeah. yeah, I tried that. It doesn't work. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I don't have a lot of faith in that. I believe in UFOs, but the uh, hypnotist, no way, man. No, that, no. <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel. But yeah, okay, the calming influence that makes sense. Okay. Well, yeah, that came in. That we experienced that. Yeah, and that was that was. We're we're talking and. Uh, my friend has his head turned to the left, which would have been toward the, the west. And he says, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? Oh. And I'm like, you know, what are you talking about? Because, I mean, 19, 1977, this place was very, very remote. There are some buildings scattered around it now. But uh, back in 1977, it was the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know of any lights. And I, his torso was in the way from where I was sitting. So I had to stand up and look over him. And on the horizon, or actually just above the horizon, there were three bright little stars in a tight pattern. And they were twinkling. And they just looked out of place. And my friend was an amateur astronomer, right? He those could point out galaxies and time when satellites are coming over. That was his thing. He liked space. And uh, I asked him, I said, look, man, you're, you're the expert on, on this stuff. What are those? Are those normal? Are those? And he says, I don't know what those are. Uh, but I don't think they belong there. So I said, the you know, terrifying this, statement. Well, yeah, kind of. And then I'm yeah. trying to reach some kind of logical conclusion. And I said, look, it could be an air, an airplane. I mean, we didn't know any airplane that had that type of light configuration in the front. But I said, you know, it could be an airplane, and its course is, you know, right on the nose, headed towards us. So until it deviates a degree or two in its course, we won't see it move. And he's like, okay, well, let's watch it. So we did. So we watched it and uh, and it didn't move. And then eventually it did after a couple minutes. And what it did was it it rotated like it was on an axis and it turned to the right about 120 degrees and aligned the base of the triangle parallel with the horizon. And as soon as it done that, it started to move up into the sky. And here's where things really get. Uh, I mean, you know, two people see something like this. We should have had some kind of excited dialogue or something, but, you know, our emotions were really muted. Uh, our, our, our reactions to this, I think, were inappropriate um, because I felt um, as soon as they started to move up, I felt almost sedated. No, not almost. I felt sedated. Uh, all that anxiety that I had earlier about the, you know, the forest going quiet, that was all gone. Uh, and I was just, I was just uh, relaxed, and yeah. yeah, you know what it was. I was, I felt disassociated. I felt yeah. like I was, you know, observing this rather than participating in it. It's a weird place. I, that's the best I know how to s- describe it. But, like the potential outcome of the situation wouldn't affect you negatively. Like you're watching it happen. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, you know what it was very much like is I've had contact. Uh, by people who've had NDE experiences. Mm. In the back of incident at Devil's Den, I left an email address and I said, look, if you had an experience and you want to share it, I'd love to hear your story. And I've had 1,700 people contact me. Mm. Uh, And I've had a half a dozen NDE people contact me, uh, mostly to say that 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 dissociative feeling, the feeling of being an observer is what they felt whenever they left their body and went to the ceiling or wherever they were above and looking down. You know, they knew what they were looking at, but they felt dissociated from it, detached from it. 
And uh, I think that's spot on. That's yeah. what we felt. And just to clarify from earlier, you're saying that as you're starting to make sense of the craft or, or whatever it is, uh, it's triangular too. It is. It and is, so it is. is the area that you're currently camping on. It sure is. Like you're so, in its parking space. Exactly. I think we were. Yeah. You know, thankfully, we didn't we didn't camp in the middle of the uh, what I call the meadow. We had parked off to the side, mm -hmm. so this thing wasn't hanging directly over our heads. And it um, it continued to go up and reached like a ceiling, and I'm guessing maybe ten thousand feet. I got nothing to base that on. It's just an assumption. And it changed orientation. It was kind of on an upward project, uh, trajectory like this, where we could see three lights. And then when it reached the ceiling, it tipped over and leveled off so it was parallel with the horizon. And then the apex, the point of the triangle, was aimed at us. And then we, so we could see three lights now in a line. And then it began like a glide plane down. And I could feel this sedated feeling wash over me in waves. And I know my friend is in the same frame of mind. The only thing he's, that I remember him saying was, uh, they're really moving now. Uh, I think in reference to the, to the lights, I'm sure in the reference to the lights, but, uh, but we were sure it was one object. It wasn't three objects working in, in unison. Uh, there were just a trillion stars out that night. So the sky was a deep blue and the area inside this triangle was jet black. And, yeah, and it, before uh, before helicopter drones, I don't think we would even have the skill of having three objects moving in unison anyway at no. the time in 77. Correct, yeah. yeah. So, okay, so yeah. it's moving towards you. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so it's getting bigger. It's getting bigger and the points of light are expanding. You know, they always stay equidistant to one another and the thing is growing and it's getting bigger. And... Uh, you know, we should have been uh, concerned and uh, we weren't in the least. And we watched the thing come in at, from what looked like at the horizon, when it reached the, the horizon, it was probably at about 5,000 feet. I don't know the elevation of the plateau that we were on, but it came and it made a stop directly over this meadow, I called it, and it, it filled that space. It was a city block long on each leg of the triangle. Hmm. And the, from where we were, we were, on, we were on a flat plateau and we were level with the treetops of the surrounding forest. So that's kind of the geography of it. Okay. And as soon as this thing came to a halt, the, uh, the lights had dimmed somewhat. They weren't so bright anymore. And I, I still don't know how this thing came down and wasn't seen in five counties. I mean, it was, it was big. Um, so I, I don't understand that. Uh, from underneath, directly underneath the thing, um, it shot a light down to our campsite. And this was a, uh, a beam of white light that had um, that quality to it, like a searchlight cuts through fog. You know, you see a column of white light. Sure. This was a column of white light, maybe six inches in diameter, um, but there was no fog. It was just the light. And it landed in the middle of our campfire for maybe 60 seconds, maybe less, I don't know. Turned off, uh, just like someone hit a switch. 
And then immediately afterward, there was a laser-like thing, laser-like beam of light, about the diameter of a pencil, bluish purple, uh, that came down and would land at one spot in the campground for a half a second, a millisecond, and then reappear in some other place. I'd seen lasers on TV, but I'd never seen one in real life at this point in 1977. So this thing dances around the campsite. Uh, it hits my it's, car. You're it saying hits, like the dot of a laser pointer kind of? Exactly. We, like it, the, the, the beam would come down and stay stationary for really just a millisecond. And then it would just reappear somewhere else. Right. So it would be, I use the term dancing because that's what it looked like. This beam was like dancing all over the campsite. And it curiously, it struck me in the chest a couple times. I never felt a thing. We never heard a thing, still dead silent. And it struck my friend, it struck our tent, uh, his cooler. He had a backpack uh, next to where he sat. Um, so it struck everything. And I, you know, had the feeling it's pretty obvious this thing's scanning us, it's, you know, it's checking us out. Right. Uh, but still no anxiety. And that lasted a couple of minutes and then turned off abruptly. And then all of a sudden, the, that sedated feeling that we felt transitioned to sleepy. And I was suddenly sleepier than I'd ever been in my life. All I wanted to do was get in the tent and go to sleep. I mean, I would have been content to sleep on the air mattress out in the open air, but I, was, I felt compelled to get into the tent. And that's what I did. That's what we both did. And I didn't take off my boots, which comes into play, or my shirt. I just fell on top of this air mattress and I was out. And I don't think I was asleep. I think I was unconscious. And that's when they took us. So uh, I don't know how long we were gone because I don't know. I don't know. You know, I, I was out. Uh, my, both of our watches stopped at 2.40, you know, 2.40 a.m., we had both had wind up mechanical watches, which were kind of integral to the job of being an EMT. Uh, but we had decent, you know, good watches. Mine stopped at 2.40, my friends stopped at 2.41 and those watches never worked again. I wish I'd saved mine. Uh, How do you know that you were taken if you were unconscious? Well, well, let me finish the story. Sure. And, uh, okay. Well, first of all, too, I, I do have some memories. I don't have a clear linear memory of what happened that evening, but I do have bits and pieces. And that's been the subject of nightmares for 44 years now. Um, mm -hmm. So not as often now, but uh, you know, a couple of years when I, when I was working on the book, I, they, they ramped up. I'm, I'm sure that's just from going through all of the uh, reliving all the stuff all over again to, to recite it into the book. Um, I took I took notes in 1977, uh, and I had a notebook filled with details about this because I thought it was important to preserve it. Because uh, I don't think we have time to go into it tonight, but the OSI, the security, you know, the United States Air Force Security Police, the investigative branch, the Office of Special Investigations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how they knew, but they knew. They knew what we saw. They knew okay. we saw something. Oh, huh. oh yeah. Okay. And that was their concern with us. I think they were afraid that, because I had a reputation as an amateur photographer. I had a little dark room set up in my house. And uh, my friend Toby and I, we both lived on the base. Uh, we were both married, so we were in family housing. 
And, uh, you know, when you live on a base, on a SAC base with uh, nuclear B-52s and Minutemen 2 ICBM missiles, there's not much you can do with a camera. I mean, you know, taking pictures right. is kind of frowned upon. So <laughs> yeah. I wanted to get out in the country and take some pictures of wildlife. So that was the object of the exercise. So, yeah, what am I going to see that's classified out there? Well, yeah, nothing. I can, just some deer. I'm apparently, sure. you found the one thing. <laughs> yeah, you found you stumbled upon the one thing. <laughs> well, we don't. sure did. Yeah. And God, I wish I had a 36 exposure roll of film for it. I really do. Yeah, yeah. I was watching an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and he was being asked about experiencers, and he's he basically said, you know, I'm not going to come down on anybody with what they experienced i don't know but if it ever happens to you again steal something yeah that's his answer <laughs> yeah steal something it's good yes. advice but, yeah uh, steal something from the hyper right totally i thought it was a, yeah. you know, gonna be pretty ballsy right pick their pockets sure yeah yeah you know you're dealing with somebody who's 500 runs up the evolutionary ladder from where you are so right? yeah. it's gonna be Okay, so so at this point you've you've passed out in the tent and you know you've been taken. I passed out in the tent and I don't know anything at this point. What I know is that, um, and I found out later, working time backward, I woke up to these flashing lights that were coming through the canvas of the tent, and they were just incredibly bright. They were bright as camera flashes, uh, like kind of the old school big bulbs they used to use in the '60s. That would, you know, you see blue every time you blinked for an hour, a blue dot. They were that bright and they would light up the inside of that tent for a millisecond and they were white and yellow and orange. And I, I wake up and I'm not, I don't have my wits about me and I'm thinking, where am I? Oh yeah, we're camping. And uh, I thought, what are these lights? And I thought, well, these must be the overhead flashing lights of a park ranger's truck there to kick us out. So that's the logical conclusion I came to. And then there was a, there was a noise where it had been silent before, now there's this mechanical noise that's, uh, it's not so much loud audibly, it's kind of a, uh, a noise that you almost feel in your chest, like a, like a, like a big bass speaker at a, at a concert. It's that kind of, of uh, sound. I'm a bass player. So. Are you? Yeah. So you know? I do know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, you know, a park ranger running a generator in the back of a pickup truck that doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. and I sat up and that's when I noticed that my boots had been untied uh, almost all the way down and I was absolutely certain I did not go to bed with them like that I went with them with the bed with them laced fully up and I wasn't afraid but that annoyed me and I took off my boots and my socks were on sideways now in on the military they teach you to take care of your feet and I would never have done that not back then not today mm -hmm. And, uh, but it didn't strike me that, yeah, we had been undressed and redressed. Um, so I took off my boots, I put them on properly. I turned my attention to my friend and he's looking at something outside the flap of the tent. He's on his knees. And in one of these flashes of white light, I could see that he'd been crying because there was a track of tears down the side of his face that fluoresced in this white light. And I could see this white streak in a, in a millisecond flash of white light. And that concerned me because I couldn't imagine what would make this guy cry. And I asked him, I'm like, Toby, man, what is it? Is it park rangers? Who's out there? And uh, he said something like, Shh, be quiet. I think they're still out there. And I'm like, who's still out there? And he's non-responsive. And I got to my knees 
and I looked back, I peeled back the flap of my tent and this thing that had been 3000 feet over our heads when we went to bed has descended and has now parked 30 feet over the top of this meadow. And that's why these lights were so bright was because the, the points of the triangle were all equipped with what I call a light bar, bar that ran all the way up and down uh, the depth of the structure. And then there was a beam of light that ran up and down that light bar. Uh, there's a drawing of it. If, you, if anyone wants to look at it, it's at terrylovelace.com. Uh, I made that drawing in 1976 on some uh, notebook paper and I redrew it a little more carefully on our art paper for the book, but, but that's a very accurate representation of what we saw. And uh, the second thing I saw was what I took to be a dozen, maybe 15 little kids walking around the meadow. I mean, just like bopping around like they were tourists or something. And uh, I'm, I asked my friend Toby, I said, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night? And that's when he said, Terry Mandels ain't no little kids. Look at them, they're not human beings. And he said this, he said, don't you remember they took us and they hurt us. And as soon as he said that, my fear level went from about a two to 10. And I was absolutely terrified because all I could think of if we cough or sneeze, you know, we're gonna draw their attention. They're gonna come over and who knows what would happen. And of course they were long done with us. So, you know, that wasn't really a possibility. Uh, they were gray, they were about three feet high. They were too far away for me to tell for certain if they were wearing a, like a gray garment or if that was their skin tone. Um, and just very typical spindly torso and long, long limbs. Um, and they walked with kind of a this gray alien, you know, big head. Classic guys. gray. Very much like uh, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind uh, was, was released in November. Uh, 1977, five months after our experience. And in the last scene, they show some grays kind of coming out of a fog or a mist blowing the ship. And they look very much like that. I There's also imagine. a YouTube video that has uh, a being called Skinny Bob. If you can find Skinny Bob on a YouTube search, um, that entity, whatever that thing is, I don't know if it's CGI or what. It's supposedly it's been around for, you know, 15, 20 years or something, you know, predates CGI or C predates the digital age. Um, but, but that very much looks like what we saw. Hmm. And while we're watching, um, another light kicks on from underneath this thing. And it's about 30 feet in diameter. It's about as wide, about as broad as this thing is tall off the floor of the metal. And it's a cylinder of visible white light. And as soon as that kicks on, it gets the attention of all these little guys and they're looking at it. And then they immediately start, not in a hurry, they immediately just start walking toward the, the light. And they're all paired up in twos and threes. They're not in a column or gang together or anything. And Two of them would step into the light and then they would pixelate out over the span of 20 seconds. A whole lot like the old Star Trek thing where they had the transporter or something. Um, that was it, they would just pixelate out and be gone. And we watched, you know, pairs and threes step in and same routine, 20, 20 seconds or so, they're gone. 
And we watched the last two little guys step in there and disappear. And as soon as they were gone, that noise that we'd been hearing, which had kind of become the baseline now, you know, we didn't really notice it anymore. But as soon as it shut off, we noticed the silence again. Um, and that the column of light shut off and the points of light on each point of the triangle changed colors from yellow and orange to just straight white. And the thing took off and it didn't, you know, blast off like a rocket ship. It just, it lifted off like a hot air balloon and went up into the air. The, the higher it got, the faster it traveled. And we watched it from our tent until it was three points of light and then one point of light and then it was gone. And it was still dead quiet. And we sat like two little scared 10 year old kids, I swear to God, in that tent for probably half an hour. I, I voted that we stay in the tent until daylight because I didn't want to run from the tent to the car. I didn't want to be out in the open. Right. You know, I, and to this day, I won't cut across an open field. I'll walk a mile and a half around it rather than cut across it. So uh, my friend convinced me that, you know, let's just get out of here. And we did. And we, I took my wallet and my keys, nothing else. Uh, he took his wallet and his flashlight and we made a run to the car, got in. And I'm like, you know, Toby, can you get navigate me out of here in the dark? You know, cause there, there are no landmarks. It's just winding roads through trees, through forest. And he says, yeah, I got this. Well, he did have a good sense of direction. I mean, when we drove an ambulance, he was always the navigator. Um, so, so I trusted him. The tents there, you left the mattresses. You just left the tent. We left everything. Like I told the uh, uh, the OSI people when they were interrogating me, um, they they said, "Well, it looks like you had a little campsite set up down there, and you planned to return." And I said, "No." What, what, what we I should back up. What we did was um, we were both hurt. We were both, I had like the worst sunburn I'd ever had in my life. I mean, everywhere on my body, under my arms, soles of my feet, I mean, everywhere I'm burned. But I never, never peeled and I never blistered. Um, we were the, the biggest threat to our health was dehydration. We were both severely dehydrated and we both had flash burns to our eyes, uh, is what the doctors called them. It's a sunburn to the cornea of your eye, it's the injury like an arc welder would get if he didn't wear that mask with a smoked mirror on it or smoke glass on it. Right. So and it's very painful. It feels like you have sand in your eyes. So um, it was a miserable six hour trip going back. Uh, but we both agreed. We knew that this was 1977. We were in COs. We were in the U.S. Air Force on a nuclear base. If we went back and told them what we saw, I know what would have happened. I'm absolutely certain. They would have shipped us off for a psychological evaluation. They would have determined that we had a, a confabulation, hallucination, uh, we were delusional or something, uh, because of course those things don't exist. And uh, we'd have been kicked out of the Air Force hmm. and uh, probably on a medical discharge. It's not what I wanted. I was there to finish my enlistment and complete my education. I didn't, you know. Uh, same with, same with uh, my friend Toby. He didn't want that either. So we, we gr agreed that we would tell them, because uh, we were both ethical people too. I mean, and he's like, we can't lie. And I said, I, I don't think we have to lie. 
We can tell them the truth. We can tell them, you know, we felt funny. We went to bed. We woke up sick as dogs and came home and didn't care about a $10 Kmart tent. We just wanted to get home. Because um, you had to come clean to them because of your injuries. Yeah. And they're like, how did you get the injuries? Truthfully, I don't have a clue, doctor. Mm. You know, was, and this was, this was kind of awkward too, because we were both members of the medical squadron and we knew the doctors and nurses, we knew everybody. And, uh, you know, medical people take care of their own and we were well cared for. But what they did was they broke us up. Um, they put us in two different treatment rooms and the hospital commander, the base commander and two guys in civilian clothes I didn't know came into the treatment room as they were winding down my, my examination. And the hospital commander was very formal and he came over to me and he said, Sergeant Lovely sure to have no contact with Sergeant Tobias in no way, shape or form. That means not verbally, not by telephone. You're not to give him anything. He's not to give you anything. You're not to try to contact him through any third parties or pass notes to him uh, and on and on and on and on. And he said, and Sergeant, if you disobey my order, there'll be consequences. Do you understand me? And I said, yes, sir, I do. Because I mean, I understood consequences but I didn't really understand the reason why. Sure. Um, but I'll tell you what was weird is that, like this has happened to a lot of people from these emails I get from people. They tell me that, you know, a group of friends will see something and then they'll all drift away for some reason. It's like the band breaks up. For sure. Um, yeah, they, Ray Fowler's book, uh, great book, uh, The Allagash Four uh, has the same thing. These, these four guys fish together, hunt together, drink together, you know, run around and, and enjoy one another's company. And after this Allagash event where they were abducted, they all went their separate ways. Even the twins were. were... I, I would assume that it's not unlike a couple losing a child and they maybe still love one another, but they can't handle being reminded constantly or something like that. You know, yeah, couples you know I... divorce a lot after they lose children because they can't That's true. cope with the reminder. The tragedy, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was weird. On the on the drive back the whole way, um, here this guy just, you know, 12 hours earlier was my best friend. You know, our wives were friends. I mean, on our days off, we'd get together a lot of times, play cards, barbecue, do whatever. Uh, we, were, we were friends. And uh, I suddenly felt like I didn't want anything to do with the guy. And uh, I'm not like that. I mean, I'm, I'm a loyal friend. And I just, I couldn't reconcile that emotion. I don't know where that came from. Uh, so when they gave me this trauma. no contact order, yeah. trauma. Yeah, I think we had, a, we had a lot of trauma. So you'd ask about, um, you know, how did I know that we'd been taken? And I, and I said that I have some memories from being inside the ship. And I'll tell you what those are if you'd like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Please. The, um, the, First memory, I, they're kind of in a sequence. I, I mean, I've never had a clear linear memory of what happened here. It's just flashes, just bits and pieces. Um, I called them intrusive thoughts. I mean, I'd be, you know, cooking breakfast or cutting the grass and I'd get these flashes, images in my mind. And then my heart rate would go through the roof. And uh, uh, I was tested for PTSD in 1980s and the 80s, 86, I believe. And then again in the 90s and tested positive for PTSD. Uh, ideology unknown because I didn't tell them, you know, I saw a spaceship the size of a medical building. Um, 
So what I remember from being inside the ship is this. I was standing with my clothing folded in my arms like this, and I was frozen. I could not move a muscle. The only thing I could do was, was move my eyes. I could roll my eyes, but I couldn't tilt my head or turn my head. And I could perceive my friend was next to me, although I really couldn't see him. Somehow I knew he was there. And uh, we were inside this massive ship and it looked bigger on the inside than it like from the outside. And I don't get that. Uh, we were standing in some big open atrium and there were multiple levels that went up. And unfortunately, I couldn't tilt my head back to see how far it went up. But I could tell that, man, it was a long way to the other side. And we saw the little gray guys running around. Uh, and I have a theory about them. And I'm sure there's more than one species of gray because I've had people tell me, oh, no, you're, over, you're all wrong. They're this, they're that, you know. Um, Lots but of people I think you, they know stuff. Absolutely, you know, and they're, and they're wrong, you know. <laughs> no, they're, I'm sure what they saw is what they saw and what they experienced. I, I don't take that away from them. Oh, I, I don't either. It's just uh, it's when people have too many answers, I automatically think they're a little dubious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So my opinion of the greys, at least the ones we saw, was that they're not, they're not living and sentient in the way that we are. You know, they're not um, self-determinant thinking beings. I think they're like, in the book, I think I describe them as uh, worker bees. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, like they're hive-minded or like they're robots? Because yeah, some people have speculated that they're not even alive, that they're, that they're purely generated like we would send a probe out. Well, you know what? I, I think it's a, I think it's a combination of the two, really. I think that they are, like I say, I don't think they have souls or are living and sentient the way you and I are, but I think that they're probably a combination of artificial intelligence and, uh, you know, quantum computing and who knows, but with some biological, biological material. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And they probably have a limited amount of self-determination, mm -hmm. uh, just enough for them to get by. It's interesting because I know in some like fairy myths, there's this idea of like, you know, sort of two tiers of fairies, your, your normal ones that are like sort of basically children and you're like fairy royalty, essentially, which is more like a human being, you know, yeah. sort of taller and, you know, regal kind of thing. I, I can't remember where I heard that. So don't, you know, take it with a grain of yeah, salt. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's fairies? Yeah, there's yeah, a lot of yeah. parallels with, uh, there's a lot of books written about parallels of fairy myth and UFO uh, encounters. I never know. I'm going to look into that. I'm going to Dublin in September, so yeah, I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's been a lot of, uh, we've had a couple of guests on that have talked about it. It's it's interesting. That's cool. I'll go back and look at those. I was looking through your, I was paging through your library. Had mm. some interesting people. So uh, back to what I was saying, I, I, I could see the other side of this thing was very far away and uh, the inside of the place was brightly lit. It was mostly gray uh, and white, um, like porcelain kind of white. Um, and the light inside of it was just incredible. Uh, it was just insanely lit. And I think that's what caused our burns and the damage to our eyes. Um, Cause it was hard, it, we were squinting, it was hard to take the light. 
while I'm watching these gray guys uh, in front of me, there was a being about six foot tall, about my height, walked directly in front of us uh, and crossed our path, headed to my left. And I'm straining my eyes to the left to see him. Um, and he was not gray. He was a chalkish pink color. And he had uh, no discernible ears, just a bump maybe, a bump for a nose, a slit for a mouth. And his eyes were big, but not exaggerated big. They were more like a pair of wraparound Ray-Bans, mm -hmm. but they were jet gloss black. And I didn't see any hair and it looked like he wore a V-neck garment of some kind, like a sweater or something. Uh, and he carried himself like somebody in authority. So I got my eyes on this guy as, as well as I can. And he turns his head and we locked eyes. I mean, just by chance, I think. And of all the things, well, of the few things that I saw, this was probably the most frightening thing that happened to me. And this is the thing that comes back to me in nightmares. The second we locked eyes, this guy was in my head. And I don't know how else to put it, but he was in my head. And he knew, and I knew, he knew me, he knew my wife, he knew my plans, my secrets, my, you know, my family, everything. He knew. Um, and it's like he just either reviewed it or took a copy. I think he took a copy. And all I got back from those eyes, those eyes were just incredible. Uh, I felt so inadequate uh, looking at this thing and looking at me. I felt inferior mentally, physically, in all ways. Uh, you know, it's very much like as when our kids were little, we had a, a, a bird dog, an English setter. And she'd come over and put her head in my lap and I'd pet her on top of the head, you know, and she'd look up at me and I'd look down at her and uh, her eyes would radiate loyalty and trust and love. And uh, hopefully mine radiated the same thing back, but we each knew our respective roles. She knew that I was the alpha. And in this equation with the alien, I was definitely the dog. That's the best way I can put it. Yeah, that's... Yeah terrifying and disturbing well you know it's an epiphany to know that human beings aren't the top of the food chain we're not the be all and end all uh, that was it's, a big it's terrifying when you use the word food chain though with it <laughs> it really is yeah who yeah. knows i don't know right. i'm glad we got out of there alive yeah um, and... over the over the years there must have been multiple times that you wanted to share the story oh god yes because i think about my own life and i've been 30 people up until now you know so it's it's pretty amazing that the the 30 people you've been since then none of those different yous have been willing to tell the story up until now that's well said i like that i like that analogy because uh, that's true we change as we go through life right um but i i knew uh I mean, I knew when I got out of the Air Force, I wanted to be a trial lawyer. That was my, right. that was my goal. And I knew when I became a member of the legal community that I couldn't trust anyone. I mean, someone might be my best friend today and then, uh, you know, things happen and uh, suddenly you've got an enemy on your hands. Right. So the only person I shared it with was my wife. And we didn't talk about it very often because when we did talk about it, it would, it would bring nightmares for me and uh, exactly. so we kind of let it lay I had no intention of ever telling anybody about this uh, 
And then I retired from the state of Vermont in January of 2012. And we moved to Dallas to be next to our kids and grandkids. And uh, I had a uh, pain in my right knee. And I, I get all my medical care from the VA and I asked my wife, can you drive me to the ER? And my leg hurts and I think I need to be seen. I mean, I hadn't heard it. I mean, I did fall when I tried to stand up, but that was because of the pain. I mean, I didn't get injured in the fall. Uh, so she took me to the ER and they x-rayed my leg and um, she was kind of confused and uh, said, have you ever suffered a shrapnel wound or anything? And I laughed and I said, no, I, I, didn't, I never made it out of Missouri, you know? <laughs> And uh, she took a bunch of, bunch of, they ended up taking 24 shots on my leg. And she said, you have an anomaly on your, on your x-ray. And uh, I've asked a radiologist to come down and take a look at it. Now, you know, from working in healthcare law, I mean, I knew that that wasn't standard procedure. Standard procedure was you throw them in a big stack, they go up to a radio, you know, somebody gets a, looks at it and gives a conditional reading and says, yeah, it looks like this. And then the radiologist confirms it a week later when they read the x-ray. So it was unusual to have the guy come down in person. Uh, and he did, and he seemed annoyed to come down. But he looked at my x-ray. And if you have my x-rays, um, they're, again, they're both on terrylovelace.com. If you look at the x-ray above my knee, there's a square structure. It's obviously manufactured. It's not natural to the human body with two wires attached to it. That was above my knee. And he said, well, you had to have been in some kind of accident. And he says, there's a scar on your leg because you can't get something this size, this deep into the fascia and tissue and it not leave a scar. There's going to be a scar there. And I said, no, doctor, I don't have a scar. Yeah, I'm and, looking at uh, it right now. It is quite noticeable. Yeah, so I took off my pants so he could examine my knee. And he was visibly upset. And I said, well, let me ask you, doctor, how often is it that you examine someone with a foreign object in their body and there not be a corresponding scar? And he said, never. He said, I've been a radiologist 23 years and I've never seen this. He said, I have no way to account for that thing getting into your body. And he said, there's more. He said, there's some bones in the lower part of your leg. And you know, like me and the smart I am, I, I, you know, I said, well, aren't I supposed to have bones in the lower part of my leg? And, um, you know, he pops this, up on the view box and in my calf muscle, there's a florette pattern of little things like Tic Tacs almost. Um, and, I, and I recognize them immediately as not being, you know, the tibia, the fibula, or, you know, any, any of the normal bones that go in the lower leg. And I said, what, what are those? And he says, I don't have a clue. He said, I can tell from the X-ray film that they're the consistency of bone tissue but he said, I've never seen bone tissue sprout in the middle of a muscle. Yeah, it's like less. a flower, almost looks yeah, like a flower. It's, yeah. yeah, it's a florette pattern. Yeah. And he said, I, and I've never seen multiple pieces of bone sprout in the middle of a muscle and then arrange themselves in a symmetrical pattern. He said, I have no clue what this is. So, um, but that was a real moving event for me that, you know, I, I, I can't say I'd come to terms with it, but I had, I was determined to live with it. And, um, but this validated that they put their hands on me. And uh, so when you initially went in, when they said, hey, we're gonna bring down the guy to look at the scan, did you immediately go, this must be that? No, I had no clue. I had no clue I had anything in my leg. The only clue that I had was the thing above my knee 
on that there's a spot there about, about two inches above my knee and to the right. Uh, that's where it lay. And I was a runner. I started running in 79 when I got out of the military because I was getting, I, I ate too much. And I, you know, I wanted to watch my weight. I got cart and I got a cardiac history. So I got to watch my weight. And uh, when I would run beginning in 1979, when I started running, uh, every time I would hit the two mile mark in my run, there was a spot above my knee and to the right that would go completely numb. Mm. And I mean, it felt like uh, just like a shot of Novocaine in your mouth, numb and kind of itchy. And I took a safety pen with me one day. And at the end of my run, um, you know, it would fade after about 30 minutes. So at the end of my run, I took my safety pen and I started tapping it out and I could delineate the edges of the thing. And it was a perfect circle. Uh, and it was dead numb. I mean, it, there was no sensation whatsoever. Um, so I thought, man, that's odd. And I went and I talked to my doctor about it. I said, you know, I got the spot on my knee that goes numb when I run. And she said something like, it's oh, it's a histemic reaction or something. You know, does it interfere with your run? Well, right. No, not really. Typical says, doctor oh. answer. Uh-huh. Well, then I wouldn't worry about it. So I didn't worry about it. But, you know, in October of 2012, when I saw that x-ray, I got worried. Right. Because I, I connected the two together. How, how long were you in the military? Six years, 73 to 79. So there you are on base. You didn't go too far. I mean, you know, it was a good day's drive, but, you know, you didn't go too far. No. Um, during those years in the military, did you ever hear talk that would make you think that there was something going on? In whispers, we did. And I'll tell you who I got it from. Uh, it was mostly from security policemen. Robert Hastings wrote the famous book, Nukes and UFOs, UFOs and Nukes, rather. Mm -hmm. And um, we started talking when I published my book. And we're kind of friends now. We talk about once a week. And uh, he, he's interviewed probably 3,000 enlisted men and officers from military bases that were, were nuclear. And um, he's heard the same story that I heard before. Now, this I didn't witness this. This is hearsay. Um, but I heard it from a number of security policemen uh, who were on guard at the bunker where they kept the nukes. And they're, they're, what the sighting was, was they would see a ring of orange light fly over the thing, hover and shoot a laser beam down into the bunker and do that for a couple of seconds. Then laser beam turns off. Then the thing, the ring of orange glowing light shoots off zero to 500 miles an hour and it's gone. So that's the rumor that we heard. And uh, I, I, I believe them. I believe they saw that. Yeah, well, I mean, why wouldn't you at this point, you know, given your experience? Yeah. Wow, you know, um, you know I, don't, I don't think we've ever had an experiencer on here tell us a story in such detail. Uh, that is absolutely amazing. And, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you came. You know, I had one question about it. Uh, so you said two years later, or no, five months later, uh, Close Encounters came out. Yeah. When you yeah, saw that movie, that when you saw that movie, were you like, oh, crap, this is it. They know, you know, were you, were you? The movie was upsetting to me. Uh, Triggered. It was, I bet. Yeah. I, I see these stories of like people who like went to see Saving Private Ryan and had some sort of trauma response because they were at 
at the landing, you know, did you have a trauma response when you saw it? You're like, oh crap, I can't. You know what I did? I did. And it was that scene where they opened the ramp, they had the ramp down. And I mean, the tension was building throughout the movie, but the scene where they put the ramp down uh, and you saw the aliens in that fog, um, that, that really, that really was upsetting to me. And plus, it's a devil's tower. I mean, the name of the place is in the thing, kind of. I made that connection too. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. So you know what? I, I stayed away. I don't. I've never been a science fiction fan. Um, I've never. You know, my wife watched Star Trek. She was kind of into that, but not me. I, I read nonfiction. Prefer nonfiction. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, I I was so uh, reluctant to see anything like that because I knew. It'd give me a nightmare. I didn't see Independence Day till 2015 or something. Oh, yeah. Well, so I don't, I don't blame you. All right. Well, uh, you have an upcoming speaking event. It's something that we already covered that I'm a little bit jealous of. Uh, is this uh, Contact in the Desert, right? It is. It is. It'll be my third time there, but we're virtual this year. Right. So, but I think the way they got it set up, it's going to be real unique because you can have a little avatar and you can kind of motivate around, uh, around the uh, rooms. Oh, really? And listen to, yeah, it's real cool. Listen oh, to different speakers. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd encourage everyone to come June 25th through 28th. I'll be there. I'm going to tell my story. And if you've heard my story, I'm going to tell parts of it. I guarantee you've never heard before from my second book, uh, Devil's Den, The Reckoning, which came out in December of 2020. All right. Well, where's the best place for somebody to get their hands on the book? Uh, Amazon. Amazon. Uh, they're, they're, they're not grouped together. You have to look for them separately. Uh, the first one is Incident at Devil's Den. It's got 570 reviews or something, uh, 4.7 out of 5. I'm very happy for that. Yeah. And uh, it was a number one bestseller on Amazon. And then The Reckoning, Devil's Den, The Reckoning is the second book that came out in the third week in December of 2020. Um, and that hit number one status in February. And uh, I think that's a really good read. It's got updates on things about what happened to my friend Toby. And uh, yeah, I was curious about that. What I did was I took, I told you I got all these emails from people and I took uh, 30 of the very best stories, the best of the best. And I stuck them in the back of the book with their permission. And uh, there's some cool stories back there. Awesome. Well, uh, Terry, I really appreciate you coming on the show. This has been uh, really exciting. This is one of those few shows where Kara and I uh, really didn't say much. We just sat back and listened because we were so enthralled with this story. Uh, My mind has just been reeling the entire time. I'm just, yeah, yeah. Um, so I appreciate you coming on. I'd love to have you on again. And um, sure. the best place for somebody to uh, follow you and get more information if they're interested. You know, I've got a... a, a, a a website that's really not very well maintained, terrylovelice.com. Uh, and you can look me up on Facebook or you can just email me at uh, terrylovelace at yahoo.com. On my personal email, I return everybody's email. So, Well, thank you. Thank you very much for being on. You're welcome. Thanks, Johnson. Thanks, Kara. I appreciate you guys so much. Come to the-